You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Solar A Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, and Wattwatches, providing super smart devices to monitor and manage energy use. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson and today we're off to California to find out how that state, I think it's one of the world's biggest economies, is daring to dream of 100% renewables that it intends to achieve within a few decades. But um, before we go there and talk to a very senior player in that market and um, and that transition, I'd just like to welcome our regular co-host, David Leach, ITK analyst. David, how are you? Charles, I'm well. I trust our listeners are well, and I'm looking forward to a great discussion on California. Absolutely. And to our guest, um, Angelina Galitova, and I hope I've got that pronunciation right, Angelina. You <laughs> is, is that right? Welcome to the podcast. It's perfect. Thank you. Oh, look, thank you very much. Look, before we get into some of the details about what California is doing, I'd just like to sort of set the scene for our listeners First of all, just to make clear what you do now, you are the vice chair of the Californian Independent System Operator, which I'm guessing is the equivalent of our Australian Energy Market Operator. Is, is that right? And what is it that you do? Yes, we are the grid operator. So we operate the high voltage grid and we also run the uh, markets in California and throughout the West, actually, through the energy imbalance market. Okay, then. Now, tell me about California, then. And before we get into these technologies, I'm just fascinated about how it is that California actually got to the stage where it was talking about 100% renewables. Because in Australia, we've got a lot of renewables. And in, in some ways, we're probably ahead of the rest of the world. But um, no one can seem to bring themselves to talk more about 50%. Yet in California, I guess, maybe 10, 15 years ago, people were probably saying 10 or 20% renewables is impossible. But now you have a legally mandated target of 100% renewables. How did this come about? It was the perfect storm. Initially, of course, like in Australia, we had the utilities and the traditional energy players being very skeptical of renewables. When the first 10% target was introduced, utilities basically said, oh, no, we're going to have grid disruptions. It's going to be very unreliable and it's going to cause all kinds of problems. Well, it didn't. Um, And they were able to actually operate the grid and it was fine. We had a 30% goal with a Republican governor, and that was Arnold Schwarzenegger. And the 30% goal caused more consternations because we even heard cries of, we're going to have Armageddon. It's never going to work. Um, But (laughs) they visited Europe and they were able to see other jurisdictions that had achieved higher penetrations. And we all realized collectively that, you know what? We can have higher penetrations of renewables. Renewables can be reliably integrated into the grid. And if anything, they improve reliability. They don't decrease it because while we were ramping up solar, coincidentally with the reduction in pricing, it became very advantageous and the lowest cost. Um, We were able to show that during the drought years in California, and not being able to rely on hydro as much as we are used and accustomed to, we were able to make that up with solar energy, which proved to be a very valuable lesson. So it was actually the grid operator, the California ISO, that stepped forward because the ISO is also in charge of interconnecting large-scale renewables and said, 
yes, indeed, we can reliably operate the grid. And if we plan ahead for higher percentages, we'll be able to do that seamlessly and ensure not only that it's safe and reliable, but it's the lowest overall highest value for California customers. And that's what stepped it up to the 50% because we had Governor Jerry Brown who said, well, I want to show um, in the context of climate concerns and climate change that we have a goal that is at least showing that we're moving beyond the 50% mark. And what was valuable about the 50% goal is the fact that it does not count behind the meter solar and it does not count large-scale hydro above 30 megawatts. So if you take into account the behind the meter plus the large-scale hydro and the large-scale renewables that have been introduced, the goal is actually 60 or 65 or 70% renewables, even with the 50% goal. And once everybody realized that, it became a no-brainer to say, well, if we are already going to be doing 70, we might as well go to 100. I mean, why not? <laughs> the momentum was there. The pricing was there. The political will was there. And it all snowballed with SB 100 and Jer Governor Jen Jerry Brown leaving his office, Governor Newsom coming in, who's always been supportive of 100%. He had a 100% renewable energy goal in San Francisco 10 years ago. And um, Senator Kevin DeLeon saying, well, I'm going to introduce the bill and we're going to make this the hard target so that we have a vision for the future, which is great. I'm just and before before I hand over to David, who's um, probably busting to answer some ask some questions. I'm just wondering, just on a, on a very sort of top level, is this more of a technology challenge, or is it as some people have talked about, more of a cultural challenge to get people thinking differently about the grid? You know, it's not a technology challenge. We have the technologies. I think across the board, there's firm belief that at least for the electricity sector. There's a certain comfort level that 100% is not really a problem. Uh, routinely, we operate the grid on 78, 80% renewables here in California, even today. Um, in Europe, we have countries that operate on 100% quite easily also. So it's not a technical challenge. It's more of a um, regulatory challenge. I think regulatory frameworks haven't really kept up and developed as fast as technology has. And now we need to develop the markets as well and allow the technologies that are going to be able to, to enable us to go to 100%, not only in the electricity sector, but the building sector and for California, especially the transportation sector, because 40% of our greenhouse gas emissions come from the transportation sector. We really need to address that if we're going to be serious about climate change. So the electricity sector is the easiest one. <laughs> David. <laughs> so Angelina, uh, and thanks very much uh, for talking about California, uh, uh, which has been one of the leaders in the world, I think. Um, I think your electricity consumption is something like about 250 terawatt hours per year in California, I mean, very broadly speaking. Um, seems about right. We have a capacity of 60,000 megawatts and we've had peaks of about 42, 45,000 megawatts. And California's population is about 40 million. So if I compare that yeah. for just for people that are interested with our national Australia market and uh, electricity market in Australia, we, we consume about 200 terawatt hours on a population of, say, 24 million. So we've got certainly higher per uh, yeah, capita. <laughs> and, and I think... That's, that's true. 
And I think that's because we've got a lot more industrial electricity, aluminium smelters and things that California doesn't have so much of. I guess what I'm interested in, California is also famous, of course, because of its solar side of things for its duck curve, uh, so-called. Uh, and basically, to me, what's interesting is as the renewable penetration grows, I guess I'm interested in what you see happening to the economics of the rest of the generation fleet. That is the mainly gas-fired fleet and the imports that, it, that have to supply the balancing power in the afternoon and, and the evening. Uh, will they require ever higher prices as their um, volume opportunity declines or how is California thinking about that? Right. It's, it's important to, to have a value for those resources that are must-run resources that you need in order to reliably operate an ever larger and larger percentage of renewable energy fleet coming on. And we're trying really hard to also introduce programs that basically are technology neutrals, but are capabilities that the grid needs in order to be able to be operated reliably and the power plants and the technologies that can provide these services over time, the idea is to transition away from fossil. What has happened with the low prices of wind and solar is that first coal became uneconomic in the market. So we saw many coal plants going out of business and they continue to go out of business just because it makes no sense operationally and economically. Now the value of the gas fleet to a certain extent, especially the older gas plants that are non-flexible, that cannot provide the flexibility resources we need of this fast ramping to meet the dark curve challenges at the end of the day when you've got an increase in energy use and a decrease in the generation of solar. So how do we meet that ramp is, is going to be our next challenge. And we need a fleet of different resources in terms of very fast response resources that respond instantaneously, resources that are dispatchable that basically respond within 20 minutes, which is what grid operators are used to. That's how power plants traditionally operate. And then load shifting resources that can last for two hours or more. Uh, right now, the gas and some of the gas fleet can provide those capabilities. But increasingly, we're seeing batteries starting to come into the picture. We're seeing pumped hydro being able to respond really well. We're seeing interconnection to resources, like if we are able to interconnect to the Pacific Northwest and tap into hydro resources a little bit more than we do right now, that would balance more renewables. And of course, the larger geographic footprint that enables us to use resources from across the West to better balance the renewables across markets, which is why the energy imbalance market has been so successful and so necessary, because it allows us to optimize resources around the West, and this way everybody operates more efficiently, and the result that we see is the decreased use of fossil power because it's just more expensive. That, uh, that's right, and uh, uh, there are a number of things I want to get into if, we, if time permits, but if I just talk about the uh, industrial price of electricity, I understand that the average Californian household pays a slightly higher cost than in the average for the United States, but has a lower monthly bill because they, uh, energy efficiency and consumption and demand management have worked very well in California. I guess I just wanted to step beyond households and look at the outlook for larger users of electricity. 
will they see California as the kind of place that they would want to go to in a high renewable penetration market if it means the costs are going to be higher than in somewhere like, say, I don't know, Texas, for instance? Um, maybe for some industries that would be a concern. But again, you pointed out that efficiency has been very successful in California. The population has grown. Energy use, meanwhile, has remained stable, as has water use, which is also very important because we do have water shortages here as well. Um, California price per kilowatt hour is higher, yes, but the bills generally are quite low due to the fact that many people live around the coast where you don't need higher conditioning costs and higher conditioning load, which is a benefit. Um, and, uh, and also the fact that efficiency programs have worked well. This is the fifth largest economy in the world. So economically, we're doing okay. If you're... Um, a very high energy user and you can follow the kilowatt hour generation from renewables and also balance that with technologies on site, which people are starting to explore more and more, whether it's batteries, whether it's uh, chemical storage, whether it's compressed air or some of the other new technologies, then I think it's going to become even more interesting and more attractive for people that may be heavy energy users, but interested in supplying that heavy energy use with renewables and balancing it out with maybe hydro or geothermal or other resources that are less unpredictable and intermittent than renewables and solar, then California will increasingly become a much more interesting market. And we see the tech companies being interested in doing that um, as well and moving that's that's right. And I guess before I hand back to Giles, there are about three other questions I wanted to ask. I'd start with the uh, on the gas topic. I understand that um, in California, there are a number of uh, gas generation plants that have issues with this once through cooling system. And uh, so, you know, may may run into trouble with other environmental issues and other than and have to be replaced. And, and California seems to be moving more towards batteries than gas. I guess to us in Australia, that seems surprising because the cost of batteries is more or less the same all over the world. But we see gas in America as being very cheap compared to gas in Australia. And, and it surprises me a little bit that in California, uh, batteries can figure so prominently in, as a replacement for for, for gas-fired power stations? I think we're optimistic. We believe we're going to see the same cost curve decline in batteries that we saw with solar and wind in terms of magnitudes of reductions in, in cost, making them attractive and cost-effective. And also it's an ability to be able to meet demand that may be priced higher because if you're participating in a, in a, in a DER program, demand energy response program, and it is monetized in, in a way that makes sense for batteries to operate. And in many, many applications, it actually does through market mechanisms. People are excited about that. Um, one of the reasons I think for gas not being as prominent and people starting to be a little bit more skeptical of large-scale centralized power generation is the once through cooling issue, yes. It is an environmental issue and either people are going to have to upgrade or they're going to have to basically mothball those plants. 
What we also saw was, and I don't know if you heard of it, you probably did, was the Aliso Canyon problem here in Los Angeles, where we had a leak of natural gas from a storage facility, reducing the capacity for being able to operate that gas to less than 25%. Now that caused a huge problem in terms of operational security, so people have to start relying on other technologies, whether it's imports, whether it's transmission, whether, again, it's efficiency, batteries and other technologies in order to be able to work around the reduction in the accessibility to gas. So I think there's certain concern, too. Yes, it may be relatively low cost, but it is a greenhouse gas. You also have the probability of maybe having a leak somewhere that then causes operational issues that may not be something that we planned for. Um, and we may not have in contingencies that can immediately brought into place to be able to work around it. So I think there's much more of an openness and an acceptance that if we have alternatives, even if they're low, higher cost right now, over time with mass markets and with smart programs, we'll be able to drive those costs down um, and have a more reliable distributed system that actually responds much faster to the demands and needs of customers and allows customers to monetize assets that they never were able to monetize before. So if you have an electric car and you have a solar roof and you have storage in your home through aggregation, you could participate in programs that will pay you for the power that you either take because there's excess generation and over generation. So you become a sink or you support the grid in terms of grid shortages and transmission constraints where you enable some of that power to be available to the grid um, should we need it. And that's based on, based on based on my many trips to California, I, I reckon you'll have to have the charging strips for the cars uh, built into the roads, since everyone seems to live in the darn things. Uh, uh, <laughs> oh, you'd uh, be but, surprised! They said they they sit parked for a great part of the day too. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure they do. Uh, I, and then next, I wanted to ask about uh, transmission both within the state and, I guess, more importantly, in California, the northwest regional network it does seem to me that you're shifting this ramping uh need to your partner states and and in a sense pushing some of california's uh, issues with ramping if there is an issue out to them and i just wonder how in general firstly they feel about it and secondly whether it's going to require more transmission building to to make that whole interconnected system work properly the system is pretty well interconnected now. We do need some transmission upgrades, but nothing incredibly major at this stage of the game. And because of the time difference, there's actually, in many instances, a very nice symbiotic relationship where um, in the morning, when we have the morning ramp, we can utilize some of the solar that's available from our neighbors in the east. And in the evening, when they're experiencing their peak and we're experiencing overgeneration with the duck, we can certainly make that low-cost solar power available to them as well, which reduces the need for, for trying to um, basically, which is the worst uh, possible outcome, is, is cutting off power generation. Um, and we do not want to curtail. Now, curtailment is a normal operation of any power plant. Usage in power plants goes up and down. 
but it seems an even bigger shame if you're curtailing renewable energy or in the extreme worst case, if you're paying someone to take it because you need them to take it and, and, and you're paying them on top of the fact that you're giving them the free power in order to be able to absorb that energy. So with a better regional integrated network, we're able to optimize those overgeneration issues wherever they may be throughout the West and spread them to the neighbors so that the system is optimized for everybody. Yes, I think in Australia, we, we may eventually uh, start looking at uh, high voltage uh, DC transmission oh, yeah. uh, between the West and the East of our uh, big country to uh, maximize the solar time difference potential. And another issue I just quickly wanted to touch on, which is kind of tangential, but I suppose it goes to distributed generation somehow, is that recently in California, you've had the emergence of, I think, quite a large number of community choice uh, electricity groups, which are... Um, yes, uh, I just see Yes. Um, I guess the question is, do they really offer an advantage to customers? And... Are they an advantage or a disadvantage to the to the to the grid and to planning into the state of California as a whole? Well, I mean, they're just a load serving entity, just like any utility is a load serving entity. We have public power utilities here in California that are owned by the cities, like the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power, and it's governed by a city council. Um, we have other cities that own generation and communities that own generation. The CCAs were a very interesting grassroots movement that arose from the desire of citizens to have more renewables and higher percentages. They weren't satisfied with the 30% or even the 50%. They wanted 100 And uh, basically, they got organized and they said, why don't we take the job of buying power away from the utility and kind of step in between. The utilities still run the wires and are responsible for reliability, but the cities purchase the energy for their citizens. And because their overheads are generally lower and they have the advantage of going to lower cost contracts right from the beginning and not necessarily stranded with the legacy higher cost contracts for renewables, they're able to offer higher penetrations of renewables at a lower cost. Now they've gotten their credit rating. They're able to actually construct new projects that are renewable energy projects within the community. And the reason they're so popular and well-liked is because they reinvest in the community. The jobs are in the community. They're very visible. They have enjoyed incredible success. Uh, the attrition rate has been less than 2% all across the board. They've realized savings and they seem to be doing an okay job. So for now, um, we see them as kind of a phenomenon that has appeared out of a grassroots desire to have access to more renewables and more options. They're able to do it at a slightly lower cost, not necessarily a bigger uh, cost differential, but at a higher percentage of renewable energy and more visible community programs and even programs beyond just renewables in terms of being able to buy down electric vehicles for the community and providing incentives above and beyond what um, the state provides or the federal government provides so that like for instance in sonoma county you can have access to a brand new electric vehicle for less than eleven thousand dollars which is quite attractive and they make that available to low-income people who drive gas guzzlers as a as a, as a 
as, as an additional boost, which is good. Absolutely. And just uh, uh, my last little thing, but I guess the, well, actually, Charles, I'll hand back to you. Go on. Um, thanks, David. Yeah, you might have another chance later. I've just got a couple of questions. One of the big news stories at the moment is about the bankruptcy proceedings for PG&E, which if I'm not mistaken, I think is your biggest utility there. And I think this a lot of it stems from the damages, I think in the 30 billion or something from the uh, major bushfires and some of these apparently were caused by the um, network, the poles and the wires, you know, causing the, you know, touching the ground, causing fires. What, if any, are there in sort of the implications for the operations of the Californian grid and your 100% target? Well, I mean, fires are going to be a reality. They are a reality in California. We have them every year. They threaten the power lines every year. We de-energize the lines usually when there's a fire close by. Um, I think they're still under investigation as to what exactly caused the fire. I think the first fire, the campfire, they determined that it wasn't actually PG&E that caused it. But still, the damage is there. The fire did start. Um, the issue is, is we have more fires, and they're going to be more intense, it looks like, because of climate change. How do we ensure that we have a resilient and a community? And can we ensure that as we rebuild, and now I don't know if you are aware that starting in 2020, all new residential construction has to incorporate solar PV um, within the building itself. And 2025, mm -hmm. all commercial. In 2030, all industrial new construction. So new construction will have PV by default to begin with. And also being able to generate more of the power maybe in those remote communities allows the ability to de-energize the lines earlier so that you minimize the risk of uh, fire spreading because of power lines. It's a reality we have to grapple with, and it's something that anybody operating um, a, a, a wires or, or, or a transmission system has to be cognizant of. And it's, it's one of those things like earthquakes and natural disasters that we have to factor in and deal with. Mm. I'm just wondering if I can ask quickly about nuclear. Um, there was some talk in Australia, we don't actually have a nuclear power generation industry and some people wish it were so, but <laughs> California had two nuclear reactors. I think one of them's closed down and the other one is closing down. What? Um, how do you view that uh, technology? Well, uh, again, it's, it's probably the most expensive technology and ironically, one of the most unreliable, it turns out as well. Uh, usually the belief is, you know, this is the workhorse and we can always rely on nuclear. The fact of the matter is that it's not flexible. So it's baseload power that you may or may not need. With regards to San Onofre, what happened in California, again, one of those things like Aliso Canyon where we weren't completely prepared for what happened was we had a leak. And it was a radiation leak, and it was shut down for safety reasons. And nobody expected 2,200 megawatts in a constrained area to disappear overnight, which they did. And that left us scrambling in terms of what do we do and how do we work around uh, losing such a, a, a high amount of generation so quickly in a constrained area. We were able to pull together all the agencies and go into emergency mode, but it wasn't easy. Maybe the lesson learned there was that, yes, you can have more efficient gas generation and you can certainly rely on efficiency, on renewables, on the inverters to provide bar support, which they hadn't provided before, on distributed generation and on renewables within the constrained area to be able to make up that need with a lot less generation, I might add. 
so the feeling was, well, um, obviously it's large, but when it goes away, it goes away permanently, and that's a big hit. Wouldn't it be maybe easier if we had smaller, cleaner generators distributed throughout the state um, as a much more resilient configuration as opposed to relying on large-scale centralized power that could disappear for a variety of reasons? I mean, you saw what happened in Fukushima. Um, and if you don't need the system power, which we don't need in Diablo Canyon, uh, it has become too expensive to operate as well. So the determination there was purely economic, that hmm. um, we were going to shut it down for economic reasons. So I think the general consensus is that investment in nuclear power, just from an operational point of view, doesn't make a lot of sense in terms of economics and operation. But it makes even less sense if you factor in what do you do with the waste or, God forbid, what do you do if you have an accident and uh, a radiation release that contaminates a larger area, especially within California, which is the breadbasket of the country. Mm. Angelina, so if, if, if I look at um, in Australia, uh, pumped hydro uh, is, is kind of uh, very widely advocated as the answer to energy storage yeah. and time shifting. But I don't see much of a focus on in the sort of integrated resource plans that, that California publishes. It uh, doesn't seem to ever get into the mix very much. And I think that's a mistake and an omission. First of all, Pumped hydro is a great resource, uh, but it is geographically specific because you do need certain availabilities from a geographic point of view in order to be able to operate it and, and build it reliably. It's also pretty expensive. So unless bulk large-scale storage is required, it's an investment for more than one utility to make and you need to have the off-taker. So I think you are going to see... Uh, a reevaluation of the capabilities, abilities, and the need for large-scale, utility-scale storage, because really pumped hydro is about the ideal large-scale battery that you can have. Um, I mean, take Norway for an example. Everybody wants to interconnect to Norway because of their hydro storage, and they don't ever miss the opportunity to tell us that Denmark would never be 100% renewable with wind power if they didn't have their hydropower behind it. So they have I very- I think that's right. I think the, co the, the cost of balancing power in Europe is about three euros a megawatt hour, uh, which is certainly uh, fantastic. And that's why uh, aluminium smelters and the like can can do right. these wind, wind contracts, uh, whereas they can't do them uh, so easily in Australia. Hmm. I'd so like to I'm ask... a big fan, personally, I'm a big fan of pumped hydro. I think that we should utilize them as much as we can and, and that we should have them available to the grid, especially if we're transitioning to 100% renewables, not just in the electricity sector, but to a large extent in the transportation sector as well, which if we're going to be meeting our climate goals of 80% below 1990 level CO2 emissions by 2050, we have to be carbon free across the board. Mm. Angelina, just to one of them, um, maybe the final question. Um, you're talking about California and its 100% goals. How contagious is this thinking becoming in the United States? I'm, I'm, I know of Hawaii with their 2045 goal, um, a similar thing, of fierce, fiercely resisted by the local utilities there until the law actually came through and they said, oh, okay, we can probably do it quicker, actually. Where, where else are they thinking about this? Um, Colorado, I think, has got a utility now which is pledged to 100% renewables. 
I think it's contagious. I think, you know, um, about 15 years ago when we started our little NGO Renewables 100 Policy Institute, and we were talking about 100% renewable energy, we weren't cutting edge, we were bleeding edge. Uh, <laughs> and then all of a sudden, it became the norm. And now 100% is no big deal. You see it across Europe as, as an objective as, and as a goal. Uh, Hawaii certainly did it. Uh, for island nations, it makes absolute sense for them to transition very quickly to 100% renewable energy. Uh, but it makes sense for countries like uh, Brazil, for instance, and, and even Argentina. We were working with them, and they were considering fossil or renewable energy development, and Argentina put a very aggressive renewable energy portfolio forward, and now they're the third largest buyer of wind energy in the world. Brazil was a little bit skeptical about solar and intermittency, but when they saw our slides here at the ISO, about how solar and hydro were able to be so compatible and symbiotic in during the drought, especially, um, they decided that they were going to look more aggressively into renewables as well. But even if you take the Midwest, uh, let's say MidAmerican, which is a Warren Buffett company uh, that basically operates in Iowa, and they had never had very aggressive environmental goals, uh, their green goals were a different kind of green, all of a sudden issued a statement that they were going to be going to 100% renewable energy in Iowa, and it was the lowest cost alternative. Um, and the farmers love it, and the farmers were getting leasing payments, and they're one of the largest taxpayers in the state. So it worked out for everybody. And the fact that it's catching on everywhere, it's catching on in New York, in Colorado, in Iowa, in California, in Hawaii, and certainly in Europe and Latin America now as well. It's an exciting movement and a momentum. I think it's the future because even if you look at the global investment, the largest amount of investment is in renewables, not in fossil anymore. So I, I, I will have to uh, unfortunately wind it up there, but you make me smile when you talk about South America because I think of Venezuela. They'll have to be 100% <laughs> renewables soon. <laughs> They won't have any oil production. <laughs> well, look, thank you very much, Angelina Galitova um, from the uh, Vice Chair of the Independent um, System Operator in California. Look, it's been an absolute pleasure to, um, to talk with you today. And um, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. Anytime. I'd be happy to join again. Okay. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Solaray Energy, leading innovators of smart energy management technology. Experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, they're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solarray.com.au and secure your energy future today. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Wattwatches, makers of ultra-smart devices to manage electricity use and costs, accurately monitor and control electrical circuits over the internet in real time. Visit whatwatches.com.au and take control of your energy use.